Hey everyone. Before we get started, I wanted to say a quick word. And no, I'm not going to make you sit through an ad for Squarespace. We don't have any advertisers or sponsors. And that's not a political statement. I just haven't had any advertisers or sponsors yet. The show is still new. Maybe down the road we'll get some. But just because we don't doesn't mean there aren't ways that you can show your support. And I don't mean for me or for the show. Sure, you can go to the website and click on the support link, and there's things there, but instead of doing that, I thought it might be interesting to try a different approach every episode. Every episode, we're going to touch on themes that have resonance for us in our modern life. Uh, this week, homelessness is something that we get into to some degree, and I thought it might be a better use of your $14.99 a month instead of signing up for Audible, consider donating. Consider donating that to a charity for the homeless. If you go to our website, I've listed a few, I think, deserving charities that you could consider. Um, there's Homes for Our Troops, which is uh, a charity specifically devoted to helping homeless veterans. Um, there's the National Alliance to End Homelessness. And then there's Action Against Hunger, which is a charity looking at world hunger and malnutrition. They're all worthy of your support. So consider it. But in all honesty, these things work best when they're local and personal. And I guarantee you, it doesn't matter where you live. There is a homeless shelter, a food pantry, or a soup kitchen in your town or city. And consider giving your $10 or $15 or $20 to them. And if you don't have the money, consider donating your time, an hour or two this week, to help them. Or next time you go to the grocery store, get an extra bag of groceries. These little things that we do, the, the 10 bucks, the hour or two, the extra canned goods, they're small for us, but they are massive for people who are in need. And not just because we're filling a need, but because we're saying to somebody who is, let's say, on the shadowed side of fate, that there is a light that shines. And they can feel it on their face. And they know that they're not alone and that people out there care. And honestly, that's worth more than anything else. Okay, enough of that. Thank you for listening and on with the show. Now, now shall I tell, tell of things, things that change? New being out of old. Since, Since you, you, O gods, O gods, o gods, o gods created, mutable created mutable arts, created mutable arts and gifts. Give me the voice. The voice. Give me the voice. The voice to tell the shifting. The shifting. shifting.
the shifting story of the world. It doesn't happen often, maybe ten times a year, if that. Invariably, it comes just as we're sitting down to dinner. A knock at the door. I don't know why, but every time I have to resist the rush of adrenaline, of panic. I go into a mode where I'm ready to fight to defend my home, my family. But from what? Kids selling chocolate bars to support their school marching band? Girl Scouts? College students handing out flyers about urban beekeeping? I don't know why it feels so intrusive, so aggressive. Maybe it's my innate introversion. Maybe it's a fundamental lack of trust in humanity. Maybe it's too many news stories about home invasions. Why do I get so worked up and anxious over a few Girl Scouts on my doorstep? There are others, of course. A few times a year, it's like we slip backwards in time to the Great Depression. Some down-on-his-luck individual knocks on my door, offering to do a little work for a little cash. Some of them offer to shovel snow or rake leaves or mow the lawn. They're willing to work, offering to pick up my seasonal slack in exchange for a few extra bucks. But then there's the others. There's a book sitting on the table in front of me. It's an old book. The battered spine and cover are as familiar to me as my oldest childhood memories. I've had this book my entire life. It's the third volume in a set that used to sit on the shelf in our house when I was growing up. Each volume collected stories from literature around the world. This volume here is Midnight Blue and there's a black silhouette of a centaur embossed on the front. It's the Myths and Legends volume. I have a very distinct memory of sitting in my room as a child, I couldn't have been more than six or seven years old, and reading from this book for the first time. And here it sits now, 40 years later, right in front of me. I've kept it with me all this time. It's more than just a nostalgic artifact, though. It's a fixed spot in my own history, an anchor point in my life, heavy and unmovable, reliable. I have deep roots there, because this book was my first introduction to the gods. One story in particular stuck out to me as a child. I read it over and over again, and as a child, sitting there in my room, I wept over it. Yeah, I was that kind of a kid. Sensitive. You probably know the story. It comes from Ovid's Metamorphoses, though there have been many versions over the years. An old married couple live in a small shack on the outskirts of a village. They are poor and childless, but despite the misfortunes of their lives, they are content and utterly devoted to each other. A couple equally advanced in years, were wed there in their youth, and there grew old together, making light of poverty by cheerfully admitting it and bearing its deprivations with composure. 
That last bit, that's Nathaniel Hawthorne from his version of the story, The Miraculous Pitcher, which is actually the first version I read, the one here in this blue book of mine. The wife's name is Baucis. The husband is named Philemon, or Philemon, if you're from out of town. One evening, they hear the barking of dogs far off in the village. It was not uncommon for the cruel people of the village to turn those dogs loose when travelers came through town looking for shelter. Sometimes, too, their children were given free reign, throwing rocks and curses at unfortunate vagabonds and being praised for it by their wicked parents. There was a reason that Balsas and her husband lived outside the village. They weren't like their neighbors. And in their humble shack, on the outskirts, the old couple hear a knock at their door, and they open it to find two strangers there on their doorstep. One of the strangers was dressed in a rather odd way, with a sort of hat on his head, the brim of which stuck out over both ears. Though it was a summer evening, he wore a cloak which he kept wrapped closely about him. It appeared as if his feet sometimes rose from the ground of their own accord, or could only be kept down with effort. The staff he carried was the oddest-looking staff that Philemon had ever beheld. It was made of olive wood, and had something like a little pair of wings near the top. Two snakes, carved in the wood, were represented as twining themselves about the staff, and more so skillfully executed than old Philemon, whose eyes you know were getting rather dim. He almost thought them alive, and that he could see them wriggling and twisting. His companion is an older man, taller and graver in spirit, flashing eyes. Both of the travelers were humbly clad, and it looked as if they might not have enough money in their pockets to pay for a night's lodging. But the old couple invite them in and seat them at their table. What little food they have, they offer to the travelers. The wife took the loaf that she had baked that morning using the last of their grain. It was to have fed her and her husband for a day or two at least but still she brought it to the table. And the husband, he spent some time inspecting the withered vine that grew over their back porch, selecting a thin bramble of grapes, the last of the season, the last they would see unless the vine survived the winter. But still, he brought it to the table. And they took their little goat, the one which they relied on for their daily milk, and they made ready to slaughter and roast it for their visitors, but the stranger with the walking stick would not hear of it, asking only for a bowl of milk for himself and his companion. And though it meant that he and his wife would have to do without, the man milked the goat and filled the pitcher as much as he could, and so together they sat at their rough table, and when the man and his wife bowed their heads to give thanks to the gods for their guest's safe journey and the meager bounty that had been shared. Neither of them noticed that the strangers did not bow their heads. Their prayers ended, the old couple set to serving their guests, offering up the loaf of bread to divide between them. One of the strangers, the fleet one, broke the bread in two, and as the old couple watched in amazement, 
the loaf was suddenly restored and made whole again, and instead of the dry, thin loaf, it was the finest bread ever baked on this earth. And the grapes were no longer the dry, grainy pebbles that had grown from a stunted vine, but heavy globes that filled your mouth with wine. And the milk wasn't the watery stuff from a thin old goat long past her prime, but the sweetest mead, as fine as anything served in Olympus at the table of the gods. And if the strangers were surprised at the richness of such a feast served by two poor people, they did not show any sign. But for their part, the old woman and her husband were amazed. Every time they expected the pitcher to be drained, it seemed to always have just enough for one more cup. And the more they sliced off of the loaf, the more that remained. And the same was true with the grapes. The clusters were always full, despite the strangers constantly popping them into their mouths. And the old couple, who had expected to go hungry in order to serve their guests, they found themselves feasting as they had never before in their lives. It was clear something magical was happening. No, not magic. Something stronger, something older than magic. And time, of course. The gods reveal themselves to the terrified old couple. They are Zeus and Hermes, traveling incognito through the world. As much as transformation is a theme in Ovid, so is the outright panic that mortals are plunged into when they face a god. Balsas and Philemon fell on their faces in terror. It was Zeus who addressed them, bid them rise. Bringing them to the foot of a mountain, presumably Olympus, he says, You, with your scanty means, have mingled so much heartfelt hospitality with your entertainment of the homeless stranger. Thus, the divinities have feasted at your board. You have done well, my dear old friends. Wherefore, request whatever favor you have most at heart, and it is granted. But the old couple are too terrified to answer. The gods offer them more than any mortal has ever been given. According to some versions of the story, the woman and her husband are invited to come to Olympus and live among the gods. The implication is that they will become gods themselves. They will enjoy the eternal youth and life of Olympus. In essence, Zeus and Hermes are extending, reciprocating, the hospitality that Balsas and Philemon offered to them. As the old couple offered all that they had, so too the gods. It takes a lot of guts to turn down generosity like that, especially from the gods. But that's exactly what Balsas and Philemon do. They don't want anything from the gods, but they know better than to deny such a boon. So they offer a humble, more suitable alternative. Let us live together while we live and leave the world at the same instant when we die, for we have always loved one another. They don't fear death. They don't want immortality. They don't desire the rich life of the gods. All they ask is to be delivered of the one fear that plagues them, that one of them will die 
and leave the other alone. We ask that the same hour take us both together, and that I should not live to see her tomb, nor she survive to bury me in mine. Under any other circumstances, in any other story, you know that Zeus would be furious that his gift had been rejected. But that is not the case, not here. There is a sense, and this might just be me interpolating my own creative license into it, but there is a sense that Zeus is even humbled by their request, recognizing that it is far more suitable than the amazing blessing he offered. And if you think about it, their wish is easily granted. You've got Hermes Psychopompus right there, and he can make sure that no one is collected before their time. And Zeus? Who better to see and reward true love between a husband and a wife than the husband of Hera, goddess of marriage and fidelity? It really is perfect. The ending of this story kills me. It absolutely kills me. Balsas and Philemon return home to find their humble little house is no longer the hovel that the gods had visited. No, now it has become lovely and statuesque. A temple. Beautiful marble columns rise up where their old door had once stood. A shining dome replaces their leaky old roof. A vibrant vineyard stands where the stunted old graveyard once hung. A flock of goats is gambling on the fields around the temple, full of life and joy. And all around, where the village once stood, only a flat, clear lake remains, the whole cruel place wiped away by a flood. As heavy the hand of the gods had been upon their neighbors, it was a lighter, kinder touch that transformed the house of Balsas and Philemon. The house became a temple, a haven, a sanctuary for travelers and strangers. Balsas and Philemon became the priests, dispensing the hospitality and kindness of the gods for all who passed through. The table was always set, the pitcher always full. And as the years wore on, as they felt their old limbs stiffen with age, there came a day when the two of them stood together in the center of the temple and embraced. I love you, she whispered. It's time. It's time, he answered. I love you. It's time. I love you. I love you. It's time. It's time. It's time. And there in the temple, they raised their hands to the gods in gratitude for this last blessing that has been given to them. It's time. It's time. They feel their upraised arms lengthen, their legs stiffen, their feet move downwards into the earth, their hands outstretched, intertwining together, reaching to the sky. I love you. It's time. And there, in the temple, stood two trees, a linden and an oak, growing together, boughs intertwined, leaves rustling in the whispering breeze. I love you. 
It's time. It's time. I love this story. It is my most cherished text. I simply cannot make it through a reading without being overcome. I had to do a few takes back there. I don't know if you noticed. It strikes straight into my heart. Its roots go deep into the core of who I am. If I have a gospel, it is this story. And it's an interesting story in the context of literature as well. As I understand it, and I am by no means an expert on this, but as I understand it, the story of Baucis and Philemon lacks any precedent. It simply isn't present prior to Ovid putting it into his Metamorphoses. Now, Metamorphoses was published in 8 AD, so it's older than the Bible. And keep in mind, Ovid was collecting and curating the myths of the Greeks and Romans, which had been passed down through oral tradition. So, since we know that the Greeks have an established culture for approximately X hundreds, if not thousands of years, then that means that all of these stories are likely older than most, if not all, of the stories present in Western religion today. I like to look back at where a myth comes from, to follow the ripples back to the source. The story of Baucis and Philemon is difficult to trace backwards. Like I said, it just doesn't exist prior to Ovid. Part of me would like to believe that the story was Ovid's contribution to the canon, that it was a story original to him, something he contributed to the great work, an Easter egg he snuck into it. Who knows? Maybe it was only a family story, a little scrap of personal mythology, or a story he had heard as a child and then grafted onto a greater mythology so that it might grow beyond himself, a new hybrid. Or maybe he just made it up. Regardless, Ovid's work is a massive stone flung into a pond from which the ripples have yet to subside. These are old stories, very old stories. They have been with us for a very long time. The ripples wash over us, wash over so many other stories, creating new ripples of their own. As I said, these stories, and this story in particular, are older than the Gospels. You can see the ripples of this story in the story of Jesus. Those loaves and fishes feeding the 5,000 so very much like Baucis and Philemon's loaf of bread, their cluster of grapes. I can't help but wonder if that young Jewish boy raised in Egypt might not have heard the story of Baucis and Philemon. Certainly it's possible that Ovid's work would have traveled through the Roman Empire by that time. It's not impossible that it found its way to Egypt, to the ear of a future demigod and would-be messiah. And did he feel the ripples of Ovid flowing through his hands when he broke the bread, passed out portions of fish? And then there's the book of Acts, chapter 14. The Apostle Paul, perhaps the person most responsible for the spread of Christianity in the ancient world, Paul is visiting a town called Lystra. It's in a region we now know as Turkey. 
He's with some of the other apostles, including one named Barnabas. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith, and called out, Stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. The crowd saw what Paul had done, and they shouted, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Needless to say, this was not what Paul and the other apostles had hoped for when they came to share the story of their God. So it goes. There are more ripples spreading outward from Ovid. The story of Baucis and Philemon washes through time. When I was a kid, there was a painting of Jesus that was ubiquitous in the evangelical world. People had it in their homes, it was in their classrooms, at school, people had it in their office, at work, you name it. The painting shows Jesus standing outside an old wooden door surrounded by darkness and thorns. In the picture, Jesus has his hand raised to the door as though ready to knock. The painting is the representation of a verse from the book of Revelation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. That was part of a letter written to the church in Laodicea. This would have been in 70 AD when Revelation was most likely written. The town was originally called Diospolis, city of Zeus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. In the painting, a god stands at a door and knocks. Those who welcome him in are given everlasting life and a meal. I can't help but wonder if the writer of Revelations had heard the story of Baucis and Philemon. The ripples go backwards, too, of course. That's how stories work. They wash both ways in time. In the Old Testament, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, is where we see very similar themes. Two visitors, um, celestial beings, fine, they're angels, they're traveling incognito and come to Lot's house and seek a place to stay for the night. Now, we're told that this man, Lot, was the only righteous man living in the city of the plains, as they were called, and he provides sanctuary to the heavenly travelers, in sharp contrast to the unkindness of his neighbors. Lot is rewarded, saved for his hospitality, while his neighbors are destroyed. Sound familiar? In the ancient world, this hospitality was one of the core virtues of day-to-day -day life. The Greek word for it is xenia, literally meaning guest friendship. Xenia was important. It put the responsibility upon the community to care for itself, and it recognized that the community included everyone, including strangers. 
especially strangers. And to violate Xenia for a host to betray the trust of a guest, that was to invite the rage and punishment of the gods. Just ask the people of Troy or Sodom and Gomorrah or Balsas and Philemon's neighbors. He usually comes in the late afternoon. It's always in the summer, at the hottest time of the day and the hottest time of the year. We're usually just sitting down to dinner, and then there's a knock at the door. He doesn't offer to work, doesn't waste any time with some convoluted story about a bus ticket. No, he just dives right into his speech, which is always the same. Good evening, sir. My name is... I can never remember his name. I do not want to waste your time this evening, so let me just tell you that, yes, I am homeless. I have cancer. Yes, I am HIV positive. I also have diabetes. It is very hot, and I was wondering if you could spare a glass of water as I am feeling quite faint. He is as brown and thin as a bundle of twigs. His threadbare clothes are damp with sweat, and they hang off him like off a scarecrow. The speech is always the same. He is always the same. He comes to us once a year, and has for the past five years at least. During that time, we have lived in three different houses in this neighborhood, and yet he still finds our door. I don't know if he visits any of our neighbors. I don't know if any of his story is true. It doesn't matter. None of it matters. All that matters is he is hungry. He is thirsty. That but for a change in the wind, an extra tangle in the thread of my life, a missed paycheck or two, and I could be him. I would be him. I am him. I've made him five sandwiches over the years in three different kitchens. I load them up with whatever I have on hand. I wrap the sandwich in tinfoil and hand it to him as heavy in my hand as that old blue book of mine. Along with the sandwich, I give him a bottle of water or juice, whatever we have in the fridge. I always try to remember in the late summer to have a few bottles on hand because I know he'll probably come. And each time he thanks me, and each time I say, may your gods bless you. And then he's gone, back into the summer heat. I don't tell you this to boast of my generosity. It's quite literally the very least I can do. And I want you to understand, I don't do this because he might be a god traveling incognito. I don't do it because I feel guilty. I don't do it because I'm more fortunate than he is. I don't do it to impress my wife or children. I don't do it even because it's the right thing to do. I do it because he's a human being. And that, it seems to me, might be the real message behind the story of Balsas and Philemon. Well, one of the messages anyway. And it's the whole point of this virtue called Xenia. We should not extend kindness and hospitality to a stranger just because they might turn out to be a god. 
We shouldn't do it out of fear of punishment or hope of reward. We should do it not because they might be a god, but because they, like us, are human. The resonance of this story grows for me every day. As I round the corner to 50, I find I somehow have been blessed by the gods with an abundance of gifts that are entirely undeserved. I wake every morning glad and grateful for all of it. I pray every morning that I will live out my days with the love of my life here in this last little house of ours. My wife and I are beyond fortunate. Nothing is taken for granted. Everything in our life has been a gift. This very life together is a gift. And not a day goes by that I'm not grateful for it. Grateful for her. For everything that we've been given. And as blessed as we are, I selfishly pray every day that we might be given a little bit more. That we might grow old together. To live out the full extent of our love for decades to come. To grow old together. To leave together. There is nothing I want more than to feel these roots push deep to hear her voice in my ear as we raise our hands together, intertwined to our gods. I love you. It's time. I love you. It's time. Find Your Gods is written, performed, and produced by T.M. Camp. So, now you know who to blame. The contents of this episode are copyright 2016, T.M. Camp, and may not be copied, distributed, transmitted, or otherwise reproduced in any format or medium without his express written permission. Violators will suffer terrible fates over long years as the slow curse of the gods takes root in their lives and poisons the very foundations of all they have tried to build. Join us online at findyourgods.com 
or on Facebook at facebook.com slash findyourgods. We're also on Twitter at findyourgods. You can also find us on findyourgods.tumblr.com, and we're even on Pinterest. Because, you know, why not?